0: The New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales.
1: Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up more on the farm flood damage in the Central West and the Riverina and North Coast flood affected farmers whose houses were inundated in the catastrophic flooding earlier this year say they feel like they've been forgotten when it comes to the resilient homes package.
2: Most of the questions from other people were with regard to houses in towns and mine were with regard to country areas. What is going to happen with houses in country areas that, had they been in town, might be qualifying for a buyback or qualifying for being raised? They actually were quite surprising when I got the answer for that. They said, yes, they would buy back houses in rural areas. And I said, but what about if that house is on 100 acres? Are you going to buy the whole block? And they said, yes, which to me was quite a a large investment for one house.
1: We'll hear more about that story shortly. uh, But first up, still on the flooding, but elsewhere in the state, the biggest flood in decades is still threatening to sweep through several towns in rural New South Wales, as weeks of heavy rain have caused those rivers to burst, and hundreds of people have had to flee their homes in various towns as well. Forbes, of course, experiencing its worst flood in 70 years. Its uh, major flooding impacting local waterways and floodwaters are receding in Forbes, and the cleanup is beginning there. And uh, tens of thousands of hectares of farmland are also either underwater or being threatened with flooding as uh, the river water heads uh, downstream. Our reporter Hamish Cole is in Forbes and I spoke to him a short time ago.
3: Yeah, that major flooding is continuing but starting to recede. The Lachlan River is at 10.58 metres. Still a major flood warning, uh, still, still a major flood level, but starting to recede. You know, the waters around town, uh, they've really fallen by um, about 100 metres uh, in the main parts of the CBD. So we're starting to see people get out and about, shops started to starting to reopen, and uh, people getting in to begin the cleanup for those affected by that flood water.
1: And a big cleanup on the way, no doubt. But what about the farmland? I understand tens of thousands of hectares affected.
3: Yeah, some modelling that was done on Thursday indicated by then that that 11,000 hectares was being uh, affected by flood water. Now, that was on Thursday. Since then, the flood peak has come and gone. So that number will only rise with the amount of water uh, that is affecting people in and around Forbes. And part of the concern that the SES has is now what this water is going to be doing. It's going to be flowing down to Lachlan to places like Condoblin where we have prime agricultural land that has been really affected by flood water in the last couple of months Uh, and they're already at a major flood level and they haven't even felt the effects of this flood peak here in Forbes. So the SES is very concerned about what this water will be doing for uh, people downstream of the Lachlan and that's going to have a massive effect on farmers down in places like Gemalong, Condoblin and further west.
1: Indeed, that's right. And uh, already a big damage bill for a lot of those, a lot of those crops already underwater. So this will be, you know, another kick in the guts for many.
3: Yeah, yet another blow. You know, some of the people we've spoken to recently have been unable to, to get into their homes. They've been uh, travelling via boat um, between town and their properties. And, you know, with this next flood peak to, to come, it's very concerning. It's expected to hit a peak of 7.3 metres on the 14th of November, so still a fair while away before this flood water will reach them. But a very concerning situation. And, you know, in, in uh, the current uh, period, SES is very concerned about uh, uh, Benderabong, uh, just about 30 kilometres west of Forbes, where there's been a minor breach to the levee bank there. Now, it's a small community there, but um, the SES says if that continues, if they don't fix it shortly, that'll uh, cause widespread inundation of the village there and have a major impact on some of the farmers in and around uh, Baderabong. So, yeah, really concerning situation unfolding there. The SES has got uh, aerial choppers up to um, bring sandbags in, and they're sending crews out there to, to assist. But, yeah, very, very concerning situation unfolding there with this floodwater moving out of Forbes and further downstream.
1: And, of course, many of the farmers for months have been uh, affected by floodwater and a lot have been you know cut off from town and services and uh, been, you know, unable to move their property, move from their properties for for weeks.
3: Yeah, you know that isolation is is really starting to to back, uh, back up with the amount that um, amount of time people have been cut off. So it really is a concerning time for for places like you, along. They've been having to get aerial drops to properties and the town there for a number of weeks now. So really concerning situation unfolding with this flood water moving further downstream. It's something that will definitely be a concerning situation for a number of weeks as you know, we continue to see this rainfall with this third La Nina in a row um, bringing about these heavy falls.
1: Yeah, that's the other issue is that there's um, a lot of that land is actually uh, right next a lot of that really productive land is right next to the river and that, of course, will be the first area impacted. So there, there's that and there's more rain on the way, more rain starting on Friday, they reckon, Friday, Saturday.
3: Yeah, exactly. No relief for these towns in the central west. You know, they, farmers, we've heard a lot that they just wanted a few weeks of just dry weather. And I think the frustrating thing is, as well, is that the last couple of days while this flooding has been ongoing, it's been beautiful, clear skies, 25 degrees, beautiful days, just what the farmers wanted. And it's come when there's this major flooding. So, you know, it's been able to have the effect they wanted the weather up until friday is looking nice but then yeah as the the bureau is predicting further rainfalls into next weekend which will just bring uh, more devastation for for people along the lachlan
1: do we know you know in terms of stock losses i mean i know they're talking about uh, millions and millions of dollars worth of crop damage stock losses any reports there like cattle washed away sheep washed away that sort of thing
3: The SES said one of the biggest things that they've had to deal with with the work they've been doing in and around Forbes is with moving stock to higher grounds. And the early indications are that there hasn't been any stock losses, which is an incredible effort because, you know, over the weekend, we saw uh, 25 flood rescues over Saturday night, uh, and the SES said the vast majority of those involved uh, assisting farmers with moving livestock to to higher ground. Uh, So, yeah, an incredible effort if there is no stock losses. And just we saw last week as well. On Thursday, there was one thousand five hundred uh, lambs and ewes. They were airlifted uh, near Forbes to, to higher ground, and that required a, a multi-agency effort to do so. So, yeah, I think there was a lot of farmers that we've spoken to have just said, "Credit to the, the local authorities because without their efforts, there would be significant stock losses, which thankfully have not occurred."
1: Okay, Hamish, I'll let you get back to her. Thanks for that.
3: Thank you. Cheers, Michael.
1: That's our reporter on the ground in Forbes, Hamish Cole. It's coming up to 13 minutes past 12 here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, still staying with flooding in North Coast, flood-affected farmers whose houses were inundated in the catastrophic flooding earlier this year say they feel like they've been forgotten when it comes to the Resilient Homes Package. The first public meeting into the $800 million buyback and the rebuilding scheme was held on Friday, but many say it's left them with more questions than answers. Catherine Magner is from Tatham just outside of Lismore and she told Miranda Saunders that while there appeared to be some positive news, she's sceptical that it will actually happen.
2: Uh, I came away feeling that there's still a lot of information not being given and I also feel in a lot of ways they still don't know how it's going to roll out.
0: What were some of your big questions?
2: Most of the questions from other people were with regard to houses in towns. And mine were with regard to country areas. What is going to happen with houses in country areas that, had they been in town, might be qualifying for a buyback or qualifying for being raised? They actually were quite surprising when I got the answer for that. They said, yes, they would buy back houses in rural areas. And I said, but what about if that house is on 100 acres? Are you going to buy the whole block? And they said, yes, which to me was quite a, a large investment for one house.
0: Particularly when they've said in town that that land would then be zoned to not be able to be built on, but 100 acres could still be farmed.
2: That's right. So I don't know how that would work. And I, yeah, I just got the feeling that they hadn't even thought about it. And that was a, just a knee-jerk answer. I also asked for a house that was needing to be raised in a rural area. Say a farm had a house on a riverbank, which many do, um, because that was the highway 100 years ago. The houses were built on the top high bank and they could see when the boats were coming to pick up the cream or to take the logs away or to deliver food. Those houses now still sitting on top of the riverbank, but there may be a higher spot somewhere on the farm that that house could now be moved to. I asked, would they move a house instead of just raising it? And they said yes, but they Throughout the day they did, or the presentation, they did qualify their answers by saying it will all depend on individual circumstance.
0: So what is your circumstance and and what would you like to see happen on your property?
2: We have three houses on our farm, um, all occupied by family members. Uh, Two of them are now unlivable because they were inundated and we had insurance the insurance companies have stripped those houses out, ready to rebuild them at some stage. We would like to see one of those houses raised and the other one possibly moved. It will be a matter of how this assessment process goes, I guess.
0: So have they given you any indication of where you go from here?
2: Um, If you have made a... um, application to the Reconstruction Corporation, so put in an expression of interest for having something done with your house, they said that we will. they will start contacting people before the end of November and we will be allocated a case manager.
0: Is it giving you confidence that you may get the resolution that you want or is this process taking too long for you?
2: I think it wouldn't matter how long it took. It would be too long, even if it was to be fixed next week it would be too long especially when we're having big rainfall events and every time the river comes up you think is this going to be the one that causes the landslip to take that house. I think one of the problems with the whole process will be that they're quite likely to run out of money before they get through the whole north coast house raising, house moving, retrofitting that they're talking about.
0: What's your feeling about um, their focus?
2: I really got the feeling that they hadn't thought much about rural areas because the presentation didn't talk about rural areas. I guess because it was in Lismore, that may be one reason why they talked mostly about Lismore, but I think rural areas have in a lot of ways been forgotten about.
1: And that was uh, Catherine Magna talking there to Miranda Saunders about that $800 million buyback now we attempted to get a response. The ABC attempted to get a response from the New South Wales government about uh, some of those questions raised about the buyback for clarification in regards to farmland. It's coming up to 18 minutes past 12.
4: You're listening to The Country Hour.
0: On ABC Radio, New South Wales.
1: Well, the Federal Government has set a hard and fast deadline for all sheep to be tagged with an electronic ID and any farmer-reared goats uh, to be tagged as well. By January 2025, New South Wales farmers and uh, some uh, stock and station agents and also some in the uh, abattoir business, they're sceptical that this deadline can be possible due to the cost and the logistical terms involved. But the imperative, according to the Federal Government, is safeguarding Australia from diseases like foot and mouth disease, and also that uh, better traceability is not negotiable. Dougal Gordon is a Group Director of Livestock Systems at DPI, and I asked him that given all of those concerns, if the January 2025 timeframe for all sheep to be tagged was realistic?
5: Yeah, it's a good question. And so obviously that timeframe, which we're looking to achieve from all the state jurisdictions of the 1st of January 2025, um, Certainly, you know, sort of, we need to work through a process. And so we're working with industry uh, through a process in New South Wales. And, you know, every state is probably at a different stage, to be honest, Michael, in terms of the level of progress with respect to those timeframes. Obviously, also contingent upon government assistance. And we appreciate that because the ability to obviously implement electronic identification um, has impacts on cost. And so the ability of government to provide some form of support to ease that transition um, is a a key factor and we're highly cognizant of that.
1: So we'll need that in New South Wales because we're behind the eight ball, we're way behind where Victoria is for example.
5: Correct yeah so Victoria implemented electronic identification for sheep and goats from January 2017 and so that however also provides a precedent for us to apply the learnings from from the Victorian experience and that's been highly valuable thus far and We've had numerous conversations with Agri- Agriculture Victoria to you know, to uh, understand you know what were the challenges, uh, what were the pitfalls, what were the things that we need to avoid and by way of mistakes and what are the recommendations for New South Wales. So we've, we've been working very closely with them.
1: But I mean, the rangeland situation in Victoria completely different to New South Wales and much more difficult here, I would imagine, for goats particularly.
5: Well, the vast majority of uh, Victorians goats that they process come from New South Wales. Mm. And so certainly New South Wales as the largest sheep and goat producing state, uh, we do have our own challenges. Uh, you know, for example, you know those larger numbers means our sale are larger on average compared to Victoria. So we need to process and scan larger numbers. So that's a, certainly an issue we're highly aware of. We need the equipment and manufacturers to come on board and we need to resolve those technical and operational issues. From a goat perspective, yes, absolutely. Uh, So we've been working with the goat industry. They're part of the reference group, um, which Nishawas Farmers belongs. And so they're part of these discussions. And we've had a goat producer webinar last week as well. I'm about to head out to Broken Hill this week. So those discussions are ongoing and and we're trying to ensure that we maintain that balance uh, with respect to getting improved traceability, but also uh, understanding and managing you know what a challenging um, handling type conditions from a workplace health and safety perspective that's really important but also the numbers you know the numbers are quite significant you know when you put goats through and harvest those if we are going to tag them and I should point out right now Michael that we're looking to maintain the current arrangements in terms of Tag-free movements, so it's important for your listeners to to appreciate that.
1: Well, that makes it a little bit easier, but I guess there's an ownership issue, isn't there? And there's also a disease issue, a so biosecurity issue, so that's part of the urgency for the tagging.
5: Yeah, very important to point out. The key driver for electronic identification, uh, both at a New South Wales and national level, And that's why both industry and government at a state and national are supportive of a transition to electronic identification for sheep and goats. The key driver is is about more accurate and timely traceability. Now, why is that important? It's incredibly important because we need to reduce the amount of delay to actually trace animals because whilst ever there's delays that will lead to further disease spread if we have an exotic disease incident like foot and mouth disease. And that delay in and, and further disease spread leads, leads to longer response times, longer management times, and longer out of our key export markets. Even we're export-orientated in Australia, we have 66% of our sheep meat production exported, we have 95% of our goat meat production exported, and 98% of our wool production exported. We are very export-orientated and trade-exposed. We need to try and reduce any time that we're out of those export markets In the UK, it took seven years in 2001 when they had foot and mouth disease there. We cannot afford right throughout the supply chain to have such delays. It took seven weeks for them to trace their animals. Uh, That would be diabolical if it was replicated in Australia.
1: And and of course their farms are well fenced. In most cases, they're not. You're not talking about large rangeland areas. You're talking about fairly small farm areas. A totally different situation here in Australia. The other issue too, I suppose, from New South Wales farmers saying they don't think the time frame is feasible. They think like, maybe more help is is needed, and um, they they think that uh, you, you know the, the demands are too great on farmers to to make it to 2025.
5: Yeah, so they're the sort of the challenges that we're, we're working through uh, along the supply chain. I will also say, there's a couple of things for me, that uh, salyard systems in both the UK and Australia led to the, um, well in the UK led to the spread of the disease of foot and mouth in 2001. We have a salyard system that has a significant number of animals that go through it, which would have similar challenges from a biosecurity perspective. That's relevant. So going to your second point, Michael. Government systems absolutely is imperative here. that's why we're having ongoing discussions. The federal government has put 46 million dollars on the table. Um, that's contingent upon state and jurisdictional funding. That funding will go 26 million dollars towards the upgrade of the national livestock identification system database. Really important that we do that. We have the functionality, the you know the analytics, the cybersecurity, the reporting uh, elements of that uh, database upgraded and 20 million uh, of that remainder will go towards uh, implementation of EID. Now we're working through uh, a costing process uh, and a government assistance uh, assessment process in New South Wales to understand what those potential costs are to try and ease as possible that financial challenge, which will be the case when we implement EID, and that has uh, implications for the pace at which we can implement it. I will also say that the processing sector is very eager to ensure those timeframes are as abbreviated as possible because they don't want to have to put in infrastructure that actually uh, doesn't have a critical mass of livestock that are tagged. It's exactly the same case with the saliant sector; they don't want to pay significant dollars to put in infrastructure, and they are big dollars. For Wagga, they need thirteen or fourteen auto drafters and scanners, and each one of those costs around sixty thousand dollars. And then there's, of course, you know. Um, pen configuration, you need uh, Wi-Fi capability, software, hardware. So the dollars really add up for sectors other than producers. So they don't want to have to spend those dollars and get uh, only small numbers of uh, tags through um, under EID. That's
1: Dougal Gordon, who's the Group Director of Livestock Systems at DPI, talking about that uh, January 2025 timeline. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour it's uh, coming up to 25 minutes past 12. Well, uh, NRA has announced, uh, that, which is the natural resource access regulator, they've begun a significant prosecution in the Land and Environment Court against the Lower Murray vineyard operator. They allege that the former operator of the vineyard near Wentworth bypassed water meters and pumped up to 13,000 megalitres of water beyond their water license allocation uh, from the Darling River between the years of 2011 and 2015. Enra's uh, uh, director of investigations and enforcement says that the allegations are extremely serious, uh, and uh, even conditions in the area have, uh, have since moved from severe drought to flooding in some locations. But uh, the amount that they were talking about between 2011 and 2015 uh, unlawfully taken, they say, or they're alleging, it would have filled 5,200 Olympic swimming pools. So we hope to get an update on that on the program tomorrow. 26 past 12. You're listening to The
0: Country Hour.
4: On ABC Radio, New South Wales.
1: On Friday, the flooding caused a major gas line under the Macquarie River to burst, cutting off the gas supply to Bathurst, Lithgow, and Oberon. The gas company Gemina said that the pipeline company APA has uh, sent crews to get that supply reinstated. Deputy Premier Paul Toole provided an update on the work this morning and then handed over to Mayor Robert Taylor and Adam Watson, who's the CEO of uh, APA, the pipeline company, for the latest. But first up, Deputy Premier Paul Toole.
4: We had 20,000 customers that had no uh, connection to gas. We also know that over the past few days... Uh, in Bathurst, uh, there has been bake uh, safe as the first step, and then they've been going around turning gas back on to houses and businesses across the area. As of today, uh, 50% of houses that have gas supply are turned back on here in the local area. That has been important because it means that the hospital, nursing homes, those that are vulnerable, uh, supporting Meals on Wheels have all got now access to gas. over the coming days uh, we will continue to see more properties, more businesses coming online. Uh, In Oberon uh, we've been able to ensure that that community has been made safe. Uh, We're also seeing that uh, the community has got gas that is being supplied to the local hospital, to the nursing home uh, but also to those members of the community that are vulnerable. On behalf of the mayors, uh, especially over in LIFCO, uh, I'd like to uh, thank everyone that's come together, especially all the agencies and the APA and uh, Gemina, to put this, uh, you know, this has been unprecedented. You know, this has never happened in this area before. And to think that the community has come together the way they have, especially through all the regions and all the LGAs. And it's just wonderful to think that we can combine to put, uh, you know, what's been a traumatic sort of a few days, uh, into perspective and get it up and running and, and get it
6: back on, on deck the way we're going. At an APA level, we've got uh, hundreds of people as, uh, dedicated to this. We've got over 100 engineers uh, working on temporary and permanent solutions. Um, we've allocated uh, many, many uh, gas fit- fitters and electricians Uh, to um, the project to support uh, Gemina for example in the reconnections as well so just a reminder that um, this has been an issue caused by the floods um, effectively impacting a pipeline uh, that runs underneath the Macquarie River Um, and we were able to restore gas connections to Bathurst first effectively because of the way that the gas was flowing upstream Um, so by Being able to safely um, disconnect the the gas pipeline we're able to reconnect um, the gas that was flowing upstream through Bathurst which was why we're able to reconnect them uh, very quickly and now we're working through the other the other three uh, communities to ensure that we can restore that uh, very quickly as well the deputy premier uh, has already mentioned the work that we're doing around bringing a 42 ton LNG vessel to site here in the uh, in the communities um, that will then enable us to connect LNG and we 're shipping LNG tankers uh, up to uh, up to New South Wales as we speak to ensure that we can then quickly fill that vessel and that will provide some temporary relief to the community um, that was not going to be able to, to ensure that everyone is reconnected but what we are able to do now we believe with a high degree of confidence is to include a secondary piece of temporary solution, effectively a temporary pipe that will sit, uh, again, temporarily along the riverbed, along the Macquarie River, reconnect that pipeline, and we're very hopeful that we can get our communities, uh, the the remaining three communities, um, up and connected uh, over the next uh, week or two.
1: Adam Watson is the CEO of APA. He was uh, speaking at the press conference uh, this morning. Officials say Bathurst should be 100% back online in the next 48 hours. Lithgow is 75% connected and the rest should be back on stream by the end of today. Oberon may take a little bit longer and uh, there are quite a few uh, agricultural businesses relying on gas in those areas. So uh, you can always send us a text and let us know how you're going with that as well zero four six seven nine double two six eight four is a number to text me here at the country out. also on the Liz, getting a few texts on the Lismore buyback scheme for farms and some confusion there you can send me a text on that one too zero uh, four six seven nine double two six eight four. It's uh, coming up to uh, 29 minutes to one. It's uh, time to get some news headlines now from Adam Stroy. Good afternoon.
7: Well, I obviously you don't need to tell you about the gas pipeline. So <laughs> that's it's that one. Had a bit of a
1: chat about that just then. That's right. <laughs> okay.
7: Yep. Uh, in other news, the uh, head of Medibank has issued a personal apology to all Australians affected by the uh, health insurer's okay. cyber hack. Uh, now, Medibank has announced it's not going to pay the uh, ransom being demanded, which is... Uh, which is uh, quite hefty. Uh, So they say that uh, paying the ransom would only uh, be giving in to criminals and put more Australians at risk. The state government's given the taxi industry a 24-hour ultimatum to accept a $905 million compensation package or lose it. The government had offered Sydney owners uh, $150,000 per car and uh, more or less in regional areas, depending on rideshare availability. Um, So this compensation is to compensate for the introduction of rideshare services and the value of the plates fell. Uh, The Taxi councils rejected it, uh, but the Transport Minister, David Elliott, says the offer expires tomorrow. Uh, The Federal Government has announced a review of Australia's immigration system uh, following allegations being exploited by criminal syndicates. Jeez, who'd have thought... Um, wow. Reports uh, have alleged the visa system is being used to facilitate uh, sex, slavery and human trafficking. And the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, uh, says the immigration system is broken and needs to be cleaned up. And the federal government is uh, looking at possible delays towards the Industrial Relations Bill. It needs to negotiate with the crossbench Jackie Lambie and David Pocock have uh, expressed uh, concern about the uh, short period of the inquiry that's been announced into the bill, and they also have concerns over the multi-employer bargaining proposal. Uh, The government says it's confident it can pass the bill before December, but Jackie Lambie says that's unlikely, given Mm. their concerns.
1: Mm. Yes, that's right, quite a few concerns being raised about that.
7: And there is talk of... uh some campaigns by some of the employer groups yes yes uh, i heard about that over
1: the weekend uh, They're thinking, thinking about some some protests and things like that as yeah. well yeah all right well we'll watch that with interest thanks for that and mm-hmm. uh, we'll listen at one o'clock Nothing when you're uh,
7: <laughs> too major there but on t- <laughs> oh there's enough happening don't <laughs> worry enough happening yeah the day is young <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah.
8: all
1: right thanks for that okay. it's uh coming up to uh 26 minutes to one Let's find out about the weather details, Stephen Stefanak at the Bureau, good afternoon.
9: Good afternoon, Michael. So
1: generally fine around the state at the moment, a few showers here and there.
9: Yes, that's right. So we've got a few showers and storms around this morning. They'll increase a little bit in the afternoon, but it's quite isolated and localised rainfall that we're looking at there, not the widespread rainfall that we had last week. Um, At most, we could get a little bit of sort of potential for some localised flash flooding with the the thunderstorms. um, But otherwise, from that, just the usual standard showers and thunderstorms expected for the rest of today.
1: And looking further ahead, though, fine conditions generally for many centres until the end of the week, and then another system coming through, is that right? Which is not probably what many people want.
9: Yes, that's right. So we've got the the showers and thunderstorms all become all isolated and ease off tomorrow and then looking mostly dry on Wednesday. <clears throat> then we've got a next low-pressure trough approaching from the west on Thursday, moving into the state probably during Friday and Saturday. Brings a return to unsettled conditions and showers and storms. And also brings, this, uh, brings some higher temperatures coming down from the northern part of the state into the western New South Wales. So by the weekend, by Friday and Saturday, we're looking at maximum temperatures out in the western part of the state into mid to high into the mid to high 30s, so almost reaching 40 possibly in the far west of the state on those days uh, later this week, um, but also got those showers and storms about, but it's really when this trough over the state combines with a cold front sweeping up from the south on Sunday and Monday that we potentially get another rain event. What that means would be, mean the potential return of widespread rain, catchment-wide rainfall, Possibly looking like moderate to possibly locally heavy falls with that as that comes through. It's still early days, so it's still not until next Sunday and Monday that that may potentially occur. Uh, But that wouldn't be good for the ongoing flooding. It would exacerbate existing flooding and potentially cause renewed river rises uh, on top of the peaks which are already flowing downstream.
1: Yes, that's right, and people are a bit nervous about that. And uh, earlier, in the, I think on Friday, we were saying it could be the sort of 20, 30 millimetre range, but is it a bit too early to say or put figures down, that, you know, as to how much and how widespread it'll be?
9: We can give broad figures. Uh, I, think any, I think for many parts of the inland parts of New South Wales, 20 to 50 millimetres. So the range can be quite broad there, but there is that uncertainty, a uh, degree of uncertainty with it. And um with embedded thunderstorms will be with this system as well as it passes through on Sunday and Monday, so that would mean maybe isolated, heavier falls, possibly approaching hundred millimeters for isolated localized falls but um yeah, many places could expect twenty to fifty millimeters if this system does eventuate as the models are currently suggesting
1: mm, okay so that's probably not what uh, people would like to hear um and so 20 to, 20 to 50 meaning what that would be like with thunderstorm activity
9: I mean the twenty fifty millimetre might be generally with the showers and the rain bands associated with that but if we get some intense thunderstorms embedded with that that, that uh, localised or isolated 100 hundred millimetres might be a possibility over uh, uh, for, for a few locations across the state as well.
1: So it's quite a severe system, or could be, coming through and is it quite widespread? What sort of area of the state might be affected?
9: So most of the what I was quoted that for that 20 to 50 millimetres at broad range uh would be for inland parts of the state and southern parts of the state so anywhere along the ranges and westwards potentially could see that so that would include the western slopes um not everywhere we'll see rainfall in that range it will be a little bit varied but there's indication that we could see uh good patches or good areas which would receive 20 to 50 millimetres um if somewhere within that range which is quite broad as I mentioned
1: so Central West, Riverina, and even into the north as well.
9: Yeah, includes those districts all the way up from the Northwest Slopes and Plains districts right down to the Central West Slopes and Plains, in down to the Riverina. They're all at risk with this next system. It's hard to uh, uh, exactly say which, which ones will get, get most of that rainfall. Uh, it could be a little bit varied, but um, that's sort of what we can expect.
1: It's a few days out, I suppose, too. That's the other thing. And I suppose the hydrologists are looking at the river system, so that could see another pulse go down the river and maybe uh, push it uh, you know, into those higher sort of major flooding areas again.
9: Yes, that's right. So we've got all the pulses of major going and flowing down the system. They'll continue to flow slowly down the system. This rainfall, which potentially comes over the top next Monday, uh, Sunday and Monday, could add to those already existing peaks, but could also upstream create renewed peaks.
1: Okay, so we'll watch that with interest and watch how the uh, forecast pans out and uh, hope it's, uh, hope it uh, changes for the better. Thanks for that, Stephen.
9: No, it's you're welcome, Michael. Thanks.
1: Stephen Stefanak at the Bureau there. It's 21 minutes to one. Well, a New South Wales parliamentary inquiry into Indigenous cultural fishing has handed out its report today, recommending an independent review into the culture within the Department of Primary Industries. The Upper House Inquiry investigated why legislation to protect cultural fishing hasn't been implemented since it was passed in New South Wales more than 13 years ago. In that time, more than 200 Indigenous fishers have been prosecuted. The report found that the Government has failed to affect the will of Parliament by not commencing the legislation and made seven recommendations. Kira Proust reports.
10: A New South Wales Upper House Inquiry has investigated why legislation known as Section 21AA of the Fisheries Management Amendment Act hasn't commenced since it passed in Parliament in 2009. More than 200 Indigenous fishers have been prosecuted under the current Act since the legislation passed 13 years ago. The inquiry was launched in November last year, and today the committee handed down its report, which found that the government had failed to affect the will of Parliament by not commencing the legislation.
11: It's deeply disturbing. It was disturbing three years ago when I raised it in budget estimates and they have failed to adhere to the will of the parliament. They've actually thumbed their nose at the will of parliament and in some ways worked against uh, the will of parliament. So there obviously is a cultural problem in the, in the Department of Fisheries.
10: That's the inquiry's Chair, Mark Bernaziak from the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party. The report recommends that the State Government conduct an independent review of the culture within the Compliance Division of the Department of Primary Industries, along with six other recommendations.
11: The obvious one is to get on with it and commence, commence the Section 21AA, as well as put in uh, you know, the regulations and the local management plans that are needed to, to make this work. I think that's the the principal one. Others that stem off on that is about the culture of the department that has allowed this to occur and making sure there's proper training, a comprehensive training package for compliance officers and everyone within the Department of Fisheries to make sure that when they're dealing with this issue of cultural fishing, it's done in a respectful way and compliance is done in a respectful way because clearly that hasn't been happening. There's a clear clear flashpoint that we identified during the inquiry that where compliance officers are seeming to not understand what cultural fishing is, particularly as it pertains to sharing and bartering of a catch with the rest of the community, they haven't been able to sort of distinguish between what's sharing and bartering between a community and what then steps over the line and becomes being in possession for a, you know, a commercial benefit. And we see that's where really the flashpoint has been, and and that's where the education needs to be with the department to to be able to make that distinguishment or, you know, differentiate between those two issues.
10: The inquiry heard firsthand from Indigenous fishers who said they have been harassed and targeted by fisheries compliance officers, particularly along the New South Wales south coast. 21-year-old war man John Courage Jr. escaped a criminal conviction earlier this year when charges relating to abalone possession were dropped in court, but the ongoing prosecution of Indigenous fishers has taken its toll.
6: It really has damaged me. sort of made me not want to jump in the water anymore. I've actually had to move away from my country. I moved, I live in Wollongong now and I do come down every weekend as much as I can to provide and provide for myself, but I've slowly stopped providing for my family because it's just gotten to the point where I'm going to go to jail. And yeah, fines, these fines.
10: The state government told the inquiry that it supports the rights of Indigenous cultural fishers, but that it can't currently commence the legislation because it hasn't reached an agreement with peak Aboriginal bodies on what fishing catch limits should be in place for cultural fishing. The report recommends that the government commence the legislation by June 30 next year. But Rudy Mann and barrister Tony McAvoy, SC says the government needs to take action before the New South Wales election in March.
7: To allow this issue to drag on and be dealt with by the next government would be a sorry indictment on on the political process in New South Wales.
10: The state government has been contacted for a response, and the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries says it will respond to the findings and recommendations in due course.
1: That's our reporter Kira Proust ending that story. It's seventeen minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Now on the sheep and goat ID tag, we're getting quite a few texts on that issue in relation to the implementation of the ID for sheep and goats. Mark at Griffith says, I doubt this step will make an iota of difference to disease control in a country full of feral cloven hoof species. What I'm sure of is that it will cost producers and probably make the implementation of things like methane taxes easier to impose. Uh, Also, uh, someone else has texted in in the event of a biosecurity breach. Why would it be necessary to scan a sheep's electronic tag? Why not just manually read the existing property ID code on the existing ear tag for ID purposes and avoid all this additional expense? So, uh, quite and there's a few more tag uh, issues uh, coming through on the text line about the tag issue as well. It's a quarter to one on the New South Wales Country Hour. COP27 is underway and if farming is to help Australia meet its international climate obligations, the way that nature is managed on private land must be a consideration. The philanthropic group, the MacDoc Foundation, says better management of natural capital will help farmers bottom line and better and help better with the environment. The foundation's CEO is Michelle Gorton.
12: We need to think about the nature and climate relationship. And so, in addition to thinking about how do we mitigate carbon emissions, we also need to think about what is the relationship of you know nature loss, biodiversity loss on emissions. We know that climate change um, and nature are, are deeply interrelated. We need a stable climate for nature to survive and thrive, and similarly, you know an inverse relationship means that an increased level of emissions so we need to think about more than just reaching a baseline. We need to – we not need to do more than set a floor. We need to think about how we're going to improve and how sustainability and that meaning will change over time.
8: Um, Just reflecting on personal conversations I've had this week, another farmer put to me that agriculture was responsible for far less emissions compared to industries like the fossil fuel industries – um, yet we've seen this methane pledge from the Australian government and governments around the world just in recent times. Do you think there are opportunities there though to to contribute or to offset the emissions from other industries?
12: Absolutely. I mean, that said though, there's a lot of work to do in understanding what our carbon sequestration potential is. I mean, the opportunity that Australia has with the landmass of its size—you know, 427 million hectares of land under agricultural production, excluding production of um, you know, of, of, of um, timber plantations, for example. That's a huge carbon sink potentially. You know, and we need to understand what is our carbon sequestration potential, both from a from a tree carbon and, and um terrestrial carbon perspective, but also soil carbon. And there's still a lot of work to do. We know there have been inklings and, and um case studies of of examples of you know really strong potential in high rainfall areas in Australia and we need to know more about that.
8: This week large parts of Australia are in flood people are dealing with um, current emergencies can you understand how they might see this as nothing more than a talk fest that is not connected to their everyday?
12: Absolutely I mean I think this is you know the work that we're doing with farming for the future is actually an example of real you know work on the ground. We are really trying to understand what it is for farmers, what they need, what is the expanded kind of information and tool set that they will need to manage in kind of constantly evolving and difficult conditions. Producers are at the forefront, at the crucible of climate change. And if we don't help them and invest in the kind of skills development that's required to manage land, uh, including in drought, including in flood, um, we are going to do a huge disservice to our regional
8: communities. What do you think is the potential financially for Australian farmers in terms of um, capitalising on on natural capital?
12: So we engaged PwC uh, to to do some estimates around this, and um, last year they prepared a paper for us called "Farming for the Future," and their estimate was that it could contribute something like an additional forty percent to net profits for farmers if they had a better understanding of uh, the contribution that natural capital makes from their farm business. And that's just about literally expanding the information set that they have at their disposal when they choose to make business decisions. So in a way, it's kind of low-hanging fruit if we can make the investment to kind of get our producers and their advisors in the sector to be thinking in this way.
8: That's 40%... Simply by advertising what they're doing as being... no, no.
12: That's by making investments in natural capital. So small-scale studies have shown that those farmers that are more invested in natural capital and who, who have an understanding of how it's contributing to their farm business are more profitable. They're res- less reliant on inputs. Their, their their production is less variable, uh, and they're less risk. They're at less you know less risky to to creditors and to to insurers. So um, there are a whole range of kind of moving parts in terms of. Uh, the makeup of their, their business that, that seem to be benefiting from from investing more heavily in, in, in nature as a kind of powerhouse for their farm. So what we're trying to do with Farming for the Future is, is look at some of these studies and do them at scale across Australia to understand if these relationships and these inklings that we're seeing from these small-scale studies are real.
1: Michelle Gorton from the MacDoc Foundation. She was speaking with Kath Sullivan before heading off to Cairo for the latest global climate conference, COP27, which kicks off today.
12: The Country Country
4: Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. the big problems hay
1: producers are facing in trying to get their crops into a bale, what's it going to mean for export markets? Jeff Walker is a national grower and quality assurance manager with Exporter Hay Australia. He says the business will look to alternatives like straw to try and fill the oaten hay void.
13: You know, we've been affected you know, probably by about 50% here in Victoria and the eastern states. And you know, obviously... Uh Production will be down, you know, we're looking to source uh, other products, you know, straw and whatever we can do with growers to um, you know, to uh, help their situation, help our situation as well.
14: Obviously, good quality hay is going to be hard to find and there's going to be a lot of poor quality hay. Uh, is there an export market for that poorer quality oaten hay?
13: Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, you know, beef, beef crates and those sorts of things that have uh, exported... Uh, there's you know mid to low grade, you know, there's there's uh, different end users out there that you know require different products. Uh, so look um, anything at the right moisture and uh, you know without severe mould damage and those sorts of things, you know is certainly exportable.
14: You talked about a fifty percent reduction. Do you know what what tonnage you now expect to process this year compared to what what you'd been planning on?
13: Look we're still working through that at the moment like i I'm currently uh with farmers uh today and uh you know they're they're still cutting you know or just started cutting like these crops are mature, but they are still uh, they're still still going to make reasonable hay so uh that end figure or end percentage is still working through that like um uh so you know i i'm you know, reasonably confident that we'll uh it you know, will be in that uh, thirty to forty thousand ton mark currently, but that may, you know, depending on future rain events, all those sorts of things, uh, it will impact on stuff that's just been cut now. But uh, hopefully, that's where you know we are aiming. Uh, just here in uh, just out of Bridgewater.
14: Obviously, rain reduces the quality of hay, but. How about maturity when it's now being cut, perhaps far later than ideal? Does that have a big effect on quality as well?
13: Yeah, it does. Yeah, no, no, no doubt. Um, but once again, these grades, you know, to the end user, um, you know, are still yeah, still sorted. Uh, you know, it's still, um, yeah, so look, I'm I'm confident that uh, you know anything uh, that is not severely weather damaged uh, will, will find a place in the market.
14: Can you talk about what the price for and Hay is doing?
13: Oh, look, I think that's a bit immature, really, you know, to to discuss a price. I'd rather see strings around it, uh, feed test-wise, you know, but, you know, they, they, it's going to be strong, strong pricing there, you know, it's purely just from the supply and demand side of things, you know. So, you know, look, uh, I, I think everyone realises that... Uh, the, uh, the amount of tonnes that it's going to produce is going to be well down. So, and I can expect uh, the price to be very strong.
1: Jeff Walker is from Hay, Australia. He was speaking there to Angus Verley. It's coming up to six minutes to one. It's time for Markets. First up to Bendigo Sheep and Lambs and Jenny Kelly.
15: Good afternoon, biggest yarding so far this season with 27,000 lambs and nearly 10,000 sheep. Competition was keen and all classes of stock sold to dearer trends, with heavy export lambs a highlight. Suckers over 30 kilos carcass weight were up to $20 dearer, selling from $245 to a top of $290 to average $265 a head. There was also some very strong sales in the heavy 26 to 30 kilo lambs at $215 to $265 to average $236. These heavy lambs were well over 800 cents with some pens bouncing upwards of towards $9.00. Trade lambs were five to twelve dollars dearer, which had the best runs, averaging between eight hundred to eight thirty cents, or one hundred and eighty to two hundred and seventeen dollars for most plainer types, one hundred and sixty to one hundred and eighty, and some of these were still under eight hundred cents. More store lambs, and they were five to ten dearer, at one hundred and ten to one hundred and forty dollars for light types, one hundred and forty-two to one hundred and sixty-five for those with more frame. Ballarat boys paying up to two hundred and five dollars for trades to shear. Sheep deer are by six to twelve, big crossbred ewes one hundred and forty four to one hundred and seventy five dollars, and heavy merino use one hundred and forty to one hundred and sixty eight. Jenny Kelly for MLA.
1: Two coral sheep and lambs, Caroline Ronald.
16: Good afternoon. Agents penned less numbers for a total of seven thousand lambs and eight thousand eight hundred sheep. A full buying consortium were present, however, not all operating as the market found its floor early in the sale, lifting ten to twenty dollars. Medium trade lambs, one sixty-five to two hundred and six, gained ten dollars. Heavy trade lambs jumped twenty dollars. One seventy-four to two twenty-eight, to average eight hundred and ninety-one cents per kilo carcass weight. Heavy lambs gained $14, 210 to 234. Extra heavy types, 228 to 260. Sean lambs were stronger. Heavy trades gained $22, 200 to 208. Heavy lambs, 225 to 228. Extra heavy types, 233 to 238 light new season lambs to the processors sold from 122 to 157 gaining three to six dollars mutton was stronger with an additional weight and quality available extra heavy types gained twelve dollars crossbred ewes 130 to 168 merinos 128 to 159 trade sheep were firm to three dollars dearer 102 to 132. i'm caroline ronald for mla at corowa
1: no Forbes market today because of the flooding. Let's go to Dubbo Sheep and Lambs and Tim Delaney.
17: Good afternoon. Lamb numbers came back to 15,000 at Dubbo, approximately 6,000 less. Quality was mixed from very good to plain. All the regular buyers attended Tenant operated in a robust market. Most sales of the good quality, but between $20 to $25 dearer, with some isolated sales higher. At this stage, new season lambs for the restockers sold between $70 to $167. Light tray weights sold from 155 to 173. The medium tray weights mainly made between $177 to $198. Well presented merino lambs sold for $193 to $205. The heavier new season lambs, 25 to 26 kilograms, made from $225 to $245. Heavier new season lambs sold between $235 up to $264. Good medium tray weight old lambs made from 188 to 215 Heavier tray weights sold between 212 to $234. And extra heavy lambs sold from 248 to $319. Hoggets with cover made to $199. And still is 4,580 sheep to be sold. This has been Tim Delaney, reporter for Dello.
1: Let's go to Wagga Cattle, Leanne Dax.
18: Good afternoon, agents yarded 2740 cattle of which there were 455 cows. Quality remained mixed however there were some very good trade and heavy export cattle. Competition was erratic, particularly across feeder steer categories. Prices fell back 20 to 30 cents and more in places. Feeder heifers held up well, equaling steer prices. Lightweight steers back to the paddock 625 to 765. Few veal this week 534 to 584. Trade heifers 430 to 534. Trade. Sorry, feeder heifers, lighter weight 440 to 538, the medium weights 490 to 539, trade steers 480 to 565, lightweight feeder steers 450 to 615, the medium weights 485 to 559, processing steers, the heavy portion 430 to 531, bullocks 430 to $5, cows were firm for the heavy end 390 to 425. Middle run 310 to 385. Leanne Dax, MLA. And to Tamworth Cattle now and James
19: Armitage. Good afternoon. A reduced penning of 1,055 cattle. Yearlings well supplied. There was a fair supply of cows and grown cattle. Quality and condition was fair to good, quite a mix though. All regular buyers were in in attendance. Market trends varied. Light and medium weight yielding steers to restock and feed sold to dearer trends with strong gains in places. Sea mussels 388 to 610 cents a kilo. Breed and quality accounting for the large range in price. Heavyweight feeder steers saw a firm to slightly dearer trend 460 to 554. Little change on the heavy trade reaching 515. Medium weight yielding heifers to feed sold to cheaper trends Heavyweights were dearer, 4.50 to 5.30 and 4.47 to 5.20 cents respectively. Heavy ground steers to process 4.50 to 4.90 cents in the range of last week. Well finished ground heifers were 10 to 15 cents dearer, 3.90 to 4.70. Affirmed a firm to slightly cheaper cow market with heavy three and four scores, 3.68 to 416 cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in Tamworth.
1: That's the market information for today. You've been listening to The Country Hour. We're heading up to news time and one o'clock.